Amen. You can be seated, please. Would you, would you pray with me? Father God, we, um, we are in a trying day and we need your word. We need the comforts and the clarity that your word can provide us. And so we just gather, as it were, around the fire of your word to get warm. Would you, would you send your spirit to take up the word that he inspired and to, that, that he would come and open our hearts, open our minds to see it, to understand it, to believe it, to obey it, to respond in a way that honors our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. So would you come now and would you be our teacher, Lord? I do pray uh, about the things that I say this morning, that if anything is not in accordance with your word, that it would just fall on deaf ear and hard hearts. But if your word goes out truthfully from my mouth, Lord, would you grant it success today in the hearts and minds of all of my brothers and sisters? And I ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 29. And before we uh, walk through this text, I did want to say uh, I've, I've been asked a couple of different times about how we should be thinking about what's going on in Israel. And uh, typically it's, it's um, a lot of the questions that I'm getting are aimed at eschatology. What is going on? Is it teaching us? Are, are the end times upon us? How, how do we understand these things? Um, I don't have time to jump into a deep dive into eschatology because uh, this text is in front of us. But I did want to say three sort of clarifying statements about how we ought to be thinking about um, the parties involved. Um, Please understand, you're not going to, uh, what I'm about to say is not politically correct in any measure, but I'm not aiming for that. What I want to do is I want to accurately reflect what God's word teaches and then how we should think about what's going on over there. So the first thing, when you think about, um, when you think about Israel, what should we be, what should we be thinking? And, and um, my, my thoughts about Israel, while we love them and bless them as the root of our, the branch that we're on, they are God's, uh, Abraham's descendants according to the flesh. Listen. The problem that they're experiencing is that they're, they are under the Deuteronomic curses of the law because they have not believed the Christ who was sent to them. Now, this is not a uh, I don't mean to be ugly there. I, I'm looking at all of this. And the thing that comes to mind is to repent. They need to repent. And you would say, man, that's really unkind. They had people. They have people being butchered. How can you possibly say it seems very unkind for you to for you to take this moment to call on Israel's repentance? Well, I would just tell you, I'm trying to be as closely uh, uh, imitative of Christ. Listen to these words in Luke 13. There were some present at that very time, Jewish people present at that very time, um, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. They were butchered in Jesus's day. Their blood was spilt and mingled with their sacrifices. And what we don't hear is Jesus coming and saying, let's all stop and let's all weep. Let's all do this. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. So they didn't die because they were greater sinners than anybody else. But he takes that opportunity to call on Israel to do this in verse three. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus takes a, a, a and, and he goes on to talk about a natural catastrophe. So he takes um, the, the, the attack of a tyrant and natural disaster as a call to repent. They have renounced as a nation. There are believing Jews in the world. They have renounced as a nation their rightful Christ. And he has said, you can't, you can't do that without suffering consequences. So they, they are building a nation and they're, uh, they're our allies and our friends and we want the Lord's, bless, the Lord's best on them as a nation, but they're making the same mistake that our nation has made for the last maybe 100-ish years. At our founding, we were a decidedly 
nation that honored Christ. When we said one nation under God, we meant the triune God of the Bible. And we want his blessing on our nation. We don't mean that anymore. We're a secular nation. We think that we can enjoy all of the benefits of God, peace, of the increase of the government of Christ and of peace. There shall be no end is the promise of the gospel, is the promise of the lordship of Christ. But we've renounced his lordship. We still want peace. We still want security. We still want all of his stuff. You can't have it. They can't have it. Neither can we. So to the the Israelites, we pray for them. We pray for peace to come, but peace will not ultimately come until they bow the knee to King Jesus. To the the Palestinians, just helpful to think in terms of, um, I, I got to, when we were in Israel, I got to speak with a brother in Christ who's a Palestinian. And somebody asked him, it wasn't me, they just said, hey, what do American Christians need to know about your experience as a Palestinian Christian? And he said, you need to know that my government is not my friend. When they found out that I was reading the Bible, teaching the Bible just to my family, they arrested him, they tortured him, they tried to drive it out. He said, These are, those in the government are tyrants and they are intentionally butchering our own people and, um, and going against Israel. And so we need to understand, especially in our day, when tyranny is on the rise, we need to understand what always happens when tyrants take over. There's always innocent blood that's shed. Always. It never, it never fails to be that way. So, and then to the church, to the church, we need to repent as well because we look at the situation over there and go, it's just hopeless. Who can do, who can fix this mess? And there's something true to that. It's a, it's a very complicated mess. But brothers and sisters, we worship the one who came to be Lord of heaven and earth. The prophecy of the coming of Christ is that when he came, the government would be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Christmas time we sing, he came to make his blessings flow To our little hearts? How do we say that? What's the end? He came to make his blessings flow how far? As far as the curse is found. He came to make his blessings flow there. And so we have, we have to repent because we don't think he can fix it. We do not think that Christ is the answer. And because we don't believe that he is the answer, we're not offering him as the solution. So, you think about all of those things. We need to be repentant people. We need to be prayerful people. We need to understand that there's, there are Christian believers suffering on both sides of the aisle. And it's complicated. But there's one thing that's clear and it's not complicated at all. And that is that you cannot enjoy the blessings of God unless you come to him through Christ. And if you're a nation that refuses to do that, you ought not be surprised when you miss out on his blessing. All right? Um, Okay, you're in Genesis 29. So here's what we're going to do. Title of today's sermon really is From Bethel to Beth Satan. Uh, In Genesis 28, we read Jacob having to run from his brother Esau, making his way uh, to Mesopotamia or to, to Haran to go uh, find a wife and find some security from his murderous brother. And he stops in Genesis 28 at a place that he names Bethel, which means the house of God. God showed up to him there and he gave him promises. And he says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to bring you back to this place. And so what we're going to see in this text is that Jacob goes from Bethel to Beth. Satan, Beth, Satan. So you go from the house of God to the house of Satan. He's going to get ripped off right here. It's tendency for us to see Jacob as getting, uh, we, we, would, we might say the phrase, um, turnabout is fair play. Somebody might say, karma, you lied to your dad, you ripped your brother off, and now somebody's going to do that to you. That's not what's going on. I, I gave you my interpretation of Genesis 28. If you, if you didn't hear that, um, it's on the tube of you if you want to go check it out. But I told you that I think uh, Rebecca and Jacob deceived Isaac for Isaac's good. Much like Nathan came to David when he had sinned with Bathsheba. And he told a false story about a guy who stole a poor man's sheep who he loved and killed it. 
and fed it to somebody. And, and David said, man, that's, that's wretched. That guy deserves to die. And Nathan said, you're the man. By the machinations of Jacob and Rebekah, Isaac has now repented. So they did what they did, I believe, for Isaac's good. Laban is going to do this, what he's going to do to Jacob uh, for Laban's own good. And we're going to see this. So, so you're going to go from Bethel again to Beth Satan. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to read this text with you and observe some things. So you kind of track with it going along the way and I'll have some application at the end. So you're in Genesis 29 verse 1. And it says, you'll read along with me uh, in your head, not out loud. Then Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. Really quick, biblical theologians. What happens when a man meets a woman at a well? They get married. This is a wedding text. Now there's something, there's some symbolism and some suggestion here that I'm not going to fight anybody for. I'll just mention and you can do with it what you want. How many flocks are here? What did we just read? He saw a well in the field and how many flocks? Three. Then we're going to see another flock coming. I don't do math. Three plus one means how many? Four. At the end of the next chapter, how many wives is Jacob going to have? Four. Always a bad idea, but this, this is already suggesting there's, there's, a, there's a well that's locked. It's got a stone on it, and Jacob comes and is able to take off the well. This, these are all images and symbols for a marriage that's in the offering that's going to take place. And so there are three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone at the well's mouth was large. And when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So you've got wells, you've got flocks, you've got all of this imagery, this wedding imagery. Now, in verse 4, Jacob said to the men that were there, the shepherds, to them, my brothers, where do you come from? It's a really interesting sort of conversation here. My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we're from Haran. He said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. Um, pretty short, curt answers. I don't know that they love this foreigner examining them. Uh, we know him. And he said, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with a sheep. And he said, behold, it's still high day. Is it, not, uh, is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks were gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Now in verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, this is super interesting. You dads, knowing, uh, knowing the world as it is, and, and, uh, and Rachel is a very, um, a very young woman. We're told that she's a virgin, so she's very young, unmarried. Um, we're also told that Laban has brothers. And so she's going with the sheep to a, to a work site where there's a bunch of men who are shepherds and shepherds were notorious for being bad guys, for just being sort of, um, you know, ruffians. Why is Laban's, where, where are Laban's sons? Why is it Rachel that's a, uh, that's a shepherd? It's just an interesting, interesting question I have. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's brother. It's really interesting because commentators will always say, like, all these people are waiting around because the stone is so big. The text never really says it's so big. It just says they wait until everybody comes, so probably so that the sheep don't muddy the waters and all of that. But Jacob just goes and pulls the, the stone away. But the thing that's being suggested, if we knew our Bibles, we would know Jacob is being like his mother, Rebecca, who when she came to the well, and Abraham's servant said, can you give me water to drink? She says, sure, and let me water your camels also. And she, she doubles down on work. Jacob is a true son of his mother. He uh, uh, pulls the stone off, and he waters uh, the flocks of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Just, uh, it, it's not, we need, to, we need to pause for a moment and say he, he kisses this woman he's never met before and then he weeps aloud. This shows you 
the emotional um, acute feeling that, that Jacob is, uh, is undergoing. This is a man who was rejected by his father. He learns that Isaac was intentionally trying to cut him completely out of the covenant, cut him out of blessing. So he's had to lie to his father. His brother wants to kill him. He's known destitution, sleeping in the middle of nowhere with a rock under your head. He's met with God. And now he comes to his journey's end and he weeps. He weeps. It's, a, it's an emotionally charged scene. And then Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Okay? So, look in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob. Now you remember, we've met Laban before. And the first thing that we read about Laban is when he met Abraham's servant who came with camels and gold and treasure and wealth. And we're told that when Laban saw the camels, he saw the wealth, he saw the six Mercedes in the driveway. And he said, ah, an opportunity to make some cash. He hears the news about Jacob, his sister's son. Ah, we got another opportunity to make something from our family across the way. So he, he ran to him and he embraced him and he, kisses, and he kissed him and brought him to his house. Now, this is very significant. And at the end of verse 13, it says, Jacob told Laban all these things. What things? Well, he told them, he told him presumably about uh, his mother's plan and the, uh, the replacing of Esau and, and why he came. Esau's trying to kill me. I have to come here for safety. So he tells him all of these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone of my bone. And he stayed with him a month. Okay, so he, he receives him as family and he stays with him a month. Now, the second section is uh, from family to famulus. From Laban is going to, he receives him as family. And then something is going to change where Laban is going to start to treat Jacob like a servant, not like a nephew. Watch in verse 15. He tells, he tells Jacob in 14, your bone and you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So presumably he just stays, he works, he's helping out around the house. And then Laban, as it were, realizes that Jacob has nothing. Wealth is not following him. And so he's got to do something because he doesn't want him to freeload. So instead of, you know, sending him back home or doing anything else, he says in verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob after a month, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? For nothing? Tell me what your wages, uh, uh, what shall your wages be? That sounds really generous. But beware. Anytime a miserly person comes to you and makes you a really generous sounding offer, you need to beware. It's like the federal government coming and saying, oh, we've got these grants for you. Do they give no strings attached grants? No, they do not. There's always something there. You proceed with caution. Jacob does not. He, and I, and I think Laban has already gotten the measure of Jacob. He's love struck with his daughter. And so he gives this really generous sounding, what, what are your wages going to be? Tell me what you want to, tell, tell me what you want to be paid. Now we, we get a, um, a sort of context here in verse 16 about why Jacob does what he does. In verse 16, we're introduced to two of Laban's daughters. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So just Really briefly, um, Leah means cow, which doesn't sound like a very delightful name in our context. Okay, why uh, Rachel means you? Uh, so female cow, female uh, sheep. Why would a father name his daughter cow and sheep? Because they're precious. We we, we a lot of us have cattle, but not all of us depend upon cattle. But listen, when you have I would imagine when you are a true cattleman, you, you depend upon your cattle. Every time a bull calf is born, you think, well, maybe next time, right? That's going to be food for today, tomorrow, maybe. But when, you, when a heifer is born, you now are going to have calves every year for the foreseeable future. And so it's this wonderful, rich blessing. And so he names his daughter a really blessed name. It's a, it's a gesture towards uh, towards wealth and towards generosity, towards beauty. 
So you've got cow and you've got you, the same thing. Um, and then we're told something about them that it says Leah's eyes were weak. Um, and so, again, commentators have always understood this, or a lot of them have understood this to mean that she was ugly, that Leah was ugly and Rachel was beautiful. I don't think you can find that in the text. The, the, the idea of weak eyes, the Hebrew word there is soft. They're soft eyes. It's the idea that you can be captivated by these eyes. They're soft. They're beautiful. They might also be, uh, it might also be a, um, a gesture towards um, that they are weeping eyes. We're going to learn that, that Laban does not think very highly of his daughter Leah. And so presumably she might have known that. But the idea is Rachel, we're told, is beautiful in form and appearance. We're told that uh, Leah had soft cow-like eyes, big, soft eyes. Now in verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. Now let me ask you something, dads. If you got a, this is so fun, right? Two times in elder prayer, uh, Aaron has shown up and he has said, hey, there's, uh, there's somebody interested in somebody in my family. And the phrase he uses is, and they're coming in hot, right? Some guy called me about Casey and he's coming in hot. Somebody called me about Carly. He's coming in hot. What does he mean? He means that when a young man sees a beautiful woman and says, I would like to pursue her as a bride, he comes in hot. Now, let me ask you something, dads. If you've got a guy living with you for a month who's got puppy eyes over your daughter, do you think you would pick up on that? That you might see that like, hey, here's a guy who is really interested in my daughter. I think that's the reason this very greedy man in Laban says, name your price. What, what do you want to be paid? And you, you just name it. Your family. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to ask for Rachel. So we're told Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. It's an amazing thing what he does. He offers slave or indentured servitude. So again, from family, like he's a nephew. Now he's going, his status is going to be changed. He's going to be viewed as an indentured servant or a slave in Laban's house. You're going to work for, uh, to pay off Rachel. By the way, what's going on there culturally, you were, a man was supposed to give a bride price to the family. That, that bride price, whatever it was, was usually um, used to purchase something valuable that she could wear. So that... If anything happened to her husband and you were in a land without life insurance or health insurance or any of that, your husband dies. Now you're, this, this woman is, um, is vulnerable. And so we're, it's a mechanism to help her go with some sort of wealth. Well, Jacob has nothing to offer. He has no coin. But what he does have to offer is work. And so he says, I'll give you seven, I'll give you seven years. This was way too much. So we might imagine... Laban, if he were a good dude, you, you dads, what would you do if, if, a, if a guy said, I'll be your slave for seven years and you knew that he was a good dude? My guess would be, you might say, man, you don't need to do that. Like, y'all get married and if it ever comes where you can, where you can make good on our cultural requests, like you can send some money, fine. It's like when Abraham is bartering for a field and he says let me buy the field and the guy says no you can't buy it i give it to you well it's part of the culture abraham would have really stepped in if he, if he would have said oh sweet thank you it would have uh, ruined that guy's day no he's it's a dance let me buy the field no i'll give it to you no please let me buy it and then the guy's supposed to say what's 400 bucks between friends I think Jacob is probably expecting Laban to say something like, brother, that's too much. We don't need to go seven years. Instead, Laban says, sounds good. I'll take you for seven years without a, without a dollar given. I'll give you a bride, but you're going to serve for seven years. So he says in verse 19, it's better. Now, this is, you've got to be careful here. The devil's in the details. Uh, Jacob says, I will serve you seven years for two important words, younger and daughter, Rachel. So Jacob says, this is who I want. Younger daughter, Rachel, as a wife. Laban says, it's better that I give her. Right? We live in a day and age where, where uh, pronouns are really important and powerful. Well, they are here as well. He doesn't say Rachel. He says her. And in Laban's eyes, this is going to give him 
an excuse. It's like we, we were at a park one time and there was a waterfall and I was trying to get Eli to jump off. He was young. He, he was kind of afraid. And so I was like, all right, dude, I'll give you $500 to jump off of this thing. And he's like, what? I, he was, he's smarter than I was even then. And so if I offer him a quarter, he's not going to do it. So 500 bucks, he said, absolutely. So he goes up there and he bails off and he comes up like a wet rat. He goes, okay, where's my money? And I said, it's in your college fund, right? And from that point forward, anytime we've shaken on something, he's like, what are the terms of this deal? You, you done ripped me off once. It's not going to happen again. You got to be this way with, with, uh, with Laban. Laban says, yes, I'll, I'll, give you, uh, I'll give you to her, or I'll give her to you after seven years. Now, in verse 20, it's a very significant phrase. So Jacob served, him seven, served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. There's something very important going on in Hebrew. If we all could read Hebrew, we would know exactly what's going on here. It's the same phrase that Rebecca used when she told Jacob, Look, you need to run to Laban's house and stay with him for a few days, for a little while. Our, uh, this, this renders it a little while. It's the exact same Hebrew phrase. So Jacob was supposed to go there for a little bit and stay and then come back. He has worked seven years, but to him, because he loves Rachel, it's like just a little while. So he's made good on his mother's word. Now, verse 21, if you write in your Bibles, write from bridegroom to buffoon. So you've gone from Bethel to Beth Satan, from the house of God to the house of Satan. You've gone from family to famulus, which means indentured servant or slave. Now you're going to go from bridegroom to buffoon. Watch in verse 21. Jacob, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. A couple things worth noting here. This has been seven years that he's worked. Where there has been an, an, um, an official marriage. So we tend to think of, um, of an engagement, which we can walk away from at any point. If something goes wrong, no, I'm done, I'm out. In this day, an engagement was a legally binding contract. Jacob can't get out of this unless without a divorce. And so he's been, uh, commentators all agree, he has been... Married to Rachel, the only thing that's been withheld is consummation. So they've had seven years together. And he says, I, I, I'm done. I want to consummate the marriage. Now, he says, it's very interesting, after seven years, Jacob has to initiate. It's not that Laban comes and says, hey, it's, it's October 22nd. It's your, it's your time. I'll offer that up. It's, it's as though Laban is wondering, how long will Jacob just continue to wait without me making good on my, my promise? And so Jacob has to initiate, and he initiates a very curt ask for Rachel. He says, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time um, is completed. The, the way he phrases this, there's no please here. And the other times in the book of Genesis where a demand to give me something without a please there's always life and death. It's an urgent plea. It's, it's the slaves coming to Joseph in Egypt when they don't have any more money and any more food. And they say, please give us something to eat. It's a, it's a desperate plea, a life or death plea. He says, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. Again, we need to remember here, Jacob has been away from home for seven years. And his um, implicit in this act this ask is give me my wife so that I can take her and go home. So he's, he's thinking he's about seven days from going home. Now, verse 22. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. Now think about that. Think about what Laban is planning. And instead of doing it in private, let's have a small ceremony. I, w- I want to switch. Like I want to switch. Um, Lucy for Lydia, right, as they're getting married on their wedding day. So I don't want to do that with like this big pomp and, and ceremony where everybody's standing up and looking at the bride. We, we ought to keep it low, low key. Laban does just the opposite. Look what he does. He gathers together all the people that place and made a feast. He is going to publicly humiliate Jacob, who, by the way, does not have anybody in his family that can be there at the wedding to protect him. He's completely vulnerable. 
He has no, no dad, no brother to, to say, man, I, you know, no mom to say, I went and prayed for your, prayed for your, for your bride and she looks amazing. It's going to be great. He has nobody around him to watch his back and to protect him. He's, he's totally vulnerable. Laban gathers together all the people of the place and he makes a feast. The word feast uh, indicates uh, drink more than food. Okay, now in verse 23, but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob and Jacob went into her and Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Um, can you just pause and ask, um, if you were Leah, you ladies in the audience, if you were Leah and your dad so... Uh, was so convinced that no one could ever love you or want to marry you. And so he lies to get you married off. What might that do to your soul? I mean, we don't, we're not told if Leah was complicit. We're not told where Rachel is. Has she been captured? Is she complicit in this? We don't know. We're not told. But we are told that a man was pursuing one daughter and a dad said, I got to get rid of this one first. And so he... He gives Leah. It's very interesting because we're going to read that Jacob favored Rachel more than Leah when there really should have been, of all the people in the world who could have understood what it is to have a parent just not value you like your brother or your sister, it should have been Jacob and Leah. Right? Jacob knew what it was like to have Isaac go, That's not, he's not my guy. Esau's the one. And, and all of my stuff, I'm not going to divide it evenly. I'm not going to just favor. I'm cutting Jacob out altogether. It's amazing, amazing um, wound to the soul. In verse 25, we're told, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Could you imagine? You're waking up and you think you're going to see your bride and you see her sister. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you Deceived me. And again, people will say, this is just turnabout is fair play. Well, this turnabout ain't fair play. Because when Jacob deceived Isaac, he deceived him into covenant obedience. Please tell me you see a difference there. If, I, if I'm helping you, and so I, I cloud the truth for a moment so that you can see the truth and walk in obedience, I've, I've not harmed you, I've helped you. At the end of this deception, Jacob is in a pickle. So that's the, sec- the title of this section so is From Pleasure to a Pickle. He's in a, he's in a jam. So behold, it was Leah. And when, when uh, Jacob asks for an account, Laban says, it's amazing in verse 26. Listen to, listen to these words. It is not so done in our country to give, the Hebrew word there is to put, to put the younger before the firstborn. What is he doing there? He's saying, because he knows the story, he knows that Esau was firstborn and that Jacob got the inheritance and the blessing. And what he's saying is, I don't know where you're from. We don't do it that way here, right? It's just that subtle dig, like your place is broken and sinful. We do things the right way. Now, to which Jacob could have responded, you know, you could have mentioned that. You could have mentioned that, but he did it. So he says, it's not done in our culture, in our country, to give the younger, to put the younger before the firstborn. And then he gives them this offer. So again, Jacob is thinking, I've served seven years. I'm supposed to get my bride and be able to go home. Now, all of a sudden, I've, I've married Leah by accident, by, by deception, I haven't consummated my marriage with Rachel. What am I going to do? And Laban gives this offer. Complete the week of this one, meaning Leah, the week of marriage. Their marriage services would last about a week so that they could pronounce the seven blessings upon them. Um, And so he says, finish marrying Leah. Go through this wedding ceremony with Leah for seven days. We will give you Rachel also. Right away, meaning so finish this week and then we'll give you Rachel also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob is supposed to have been there for a few days. He's already been there seven. And Laban says, let me put you on the hook for another seven years without making a dime to build up your household. And here's a a wife that you um, that you didn't want. Okay, so 
couple of things that we need to grapple with if we're going to understand what's going on here. Because, again, a lot of people fault Jacob here. When It's, it's worth me telling you this at, at, the, at the start. Uh, there's uh, there's a, a time where God shows up to Abraham and he tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless or be perfect. And and the the translators go, instead of for perfect, they go for blameless because perfect makes it sound like God is holding out sinless perfection on Abraham, which he wasn't. He's just saying, walk with me, be blameless, be a, be a godly, good, righteous man before me. The very first thing that we're told about Jacob before anything else happens is we are told that same word that Esau was a uh, was a hunter and that uh, and that Jacob was a and and, uh, the text will render it a quiet man, which makes no sense. It's the same word. He was a blameless man. He was a perfect man. We're told at the very beginning that Jacob was a godly man. And so as we watch his actions, we need to understand what was in his thought process. So a couple of things. First of all. Jacob was legally married to Rachel. Just like Joseph with Mary, when, he, when she showed up to be with child before they had come together, he, he resolved to divorce her publicly. And we would say, well, why divorce? They're not married. Well, they were then. It was a formal, legally binding marriage that required a divorce to get out of. So divorce would be the only possibility for him to have gotten out of um, covenant obligation to Rachel. So that's one thing to remember. Secondly is now Leah in this culture, again, Jacob just consummated with Leah a marriage that was not there, that no no vows had been taken. So she is now in this culture, she's used goods. It's really tough for us in our culture to to think on, on those terms because we have a bunch of young ladies who are boasting about their body count, right? That sleeping around is a great thing, sow your wild oats, all of those things. Not so in this culture. If, if Jacob bails on Leah, her life is effectually over. Right? Thirdly, uh, and this is, we can fight over this, but we shouldn't because it's true. While polygamy is always shown to be a terrible idea, it's a wretched idea. It's always shown to be so in the scripture. The scripture never forbids it. Okay, Jacob is not by taking a, uh, by taking another wife. He's not in any way disobeying what God has said. So so let me just stop and ask you, Christian, how do you advise him right here? He wakes up in the morning and it's a different person. And now there's all of these problems descending upon Jacob. How do you counsel him? What do you tell him to do? Well, do you. Divorce Rachel and just marry Leah. Do you kick Leah to the curb? Forget Leah. She helped to deceive. I'm, I'm going to make good on my covenant with Rachel. What do you do? What do you do? Well, we're not told what he should do, but we are told what he did do. He gets that offer from Laban. Complete the week of this one also, and we will give you the other in return for serving me another seven years. And then in verse 28, Jacob did so. He completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah, who we're going to find out in the next chapter. All of these women become wives. Uh, And those two, I, I think, probably were sinful for him to take. But in verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, so what do we make of this? How can we as Christians think through um, applying this, think through um, making sense of all of this, uh, of all of this mess? Well, I have uh, four or five things and then I'll be done. The first thing I want to tell you, it's the most important probably from this text, is that Satan's setbacks are always God's shortcuts. Okay, Satan's setbacks are always God's shortcuts. Think about this. Abraham. Uh, gets a covenant with God through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so, um, and he has promised that you're going to have descendants that will, that will, if you can count the stars and the dust, you'll be able to count your children. And how many children does Abraham have? Effectually two. He does have some others, but uh, the question is, is it going to be, is his line going to go through Ishmael or through Isaac? And God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael goes on to have 12 princes. Twelve tribes, twelve kings come from Ishmael's line immediately. Isaac, on the other hand, has a barren wife. And he has to beg and plead with God. And then they they have twins. They have 
uh, Jacob and they have Esau. And God chooses Jacob, not Esau, through whom Christ would come. And so you have all of the covenant sons, Abraham with two sons, Isaac uh, with two sons. Um, and, and, and one of those is the covenant son. And the other goes off. Esau goes off to have how many sons? Do you know? It's 12. That's 12 princes. So it's like everybody that God is choosing is going on to be super like multiplying. They, they've got 12 families, 12 princes. They've got kingdom. They've got all this power. Meanwhile, God's people are just barely hanging on. We've got one. We've got two. We've got like all of these, these slim um, numbers. And so here Jacob comes to find a wife and by the machinations of Laban and probably inspired by Satan, now all of a sudden Jacob has a wife that he didn't intend. Well, by God's providential goodness toward Jacob, Satan's house becomes the house of blessing. How many children is, is he going to have here? He's going he's to end up with 12 sons and, and at least one daughter. Now th- think about this. If all he ever got was Rachel... How many children? How many sons does he have? If, oh, if he only married Rachel. He only has two. God uses this treachery to bring about the 12 tribes of Israel. It's really, really important. So, so Laban's goals is to use Jacob and then ruin Jacob. He, he wants to get rid of his two daughters. This is his full intention. Get rid of his two daughters and then get all of his wealth given to his sons. And, and you can see the logic. Jacob comes from a wealthy family. He's going to inherit all that stuff so he can take my daughters and they can go be wealthy. But my stuff is going to go to my house. Well, God said otherwise. So with just Jacob's plan, he would have ended up with only two sons via Rachel. Leah is the unwanted sister. Listen to this. She is the unwanted wife, the unwanted sister through whom your Savior and mine was born. Isn't that amazing? This does not happen. Unless Satan takes his best shot and God turns it to good. Satan uses Laban to throw Leah at Jacob. God's reply is, thank you kindly. The Redeemer will come through that line. God always takes Satan's setbacks and he makes them into shortcuts. Secondly, your plans may be well-intentioned, but you need to trust the providence of God when your plans get derailed. Jacob's plan, I'm going to work for seven years, I'm going to get Rachel, and it didn't go that way. So what do you do? Do you fight? Do you say, no, my plan is going to rule? Or do you trust, you trust the Lord? Um, I don't know if I should share this with you or not. I'm going to do it, and you can, you know. Uh, this week, a friend of mine called, and he said, hey, man, I just wanted you to know. Um, do you guys get the Fayette County record, the, the time capsule uh, it gives you a, a paper from 10 years ago. Well, he, he called and he goes, I didn't want you to be blindsided, but Meg is on the front page of, of the paper 10 years ago. Right? My, my first wife who, who died in a car accident with our, uh, with our three kids. Now, if you rewind 10 years ago, um, what was my plan and what was Meg's plan and what was Gracie's plan and what were our three kids' plans? Like, my plan was to grow old with Meg and die a happy man. And God said otherwise. Right? It, didn't, it didn't go that way. And while we would never look back and say, super glad she, she died, never say that. But I can absolutely say, I'm really glad I'm married to Gracie. I can absolutely say, I'm really glad we got a Lucy Pearl Josephine. I'm really glad we got a Judah Mac Habakkuk. I'm really glad we got a Lydia Faye Verity. I'm really glad we got a Lachlan Billy Goldberry. So, so again, I'm on a track with a plan, and it stopped. And detour is there. I mean, you've you got to go a different way. You don't get to go the way that you're intending. But I'm going to take you this way. And you're going to be able to look back and say, not, I'm glad that Meg is gone. But you can absolutely say, I'm glad I am where I am. Absolutely. Because God does that with and for us all the time. So we should never intentionally sin uh, so that God's grace would abound. Far from it. You should never never doubt when someone intentionally sins against you or circumstances turn foul that God is and will always turn it to your good. He works how many things together for good to those who love Him? Some stuff, right? Right? 
He works a lot of things together for your good, as long as you love him. No, what does the text say? All things together for good. All of them. So we look at this and we go, man, God, why would you allow that to happen to Jacob? I said, just watch. I'm going to bring vast, unmeasured blessing from this moment right here. Okay? Third, faith asks harder questions than unbelief. Let me tell you that faith asks way harder questions than unbelief. Jacob's pickle would not have been a pickle for many Christians. Think about that. Put yourself there. You think you're marrying this person and then dad throws another person in there. I didn't promise to love you, you know, for better, for worse, richer and poorer. And so we would, in our culture of consensuality, we would, we would have walked. What would have happened to Leah would not matter to most American Christians. I don't care what happens to Leah. She tried to deceive me. I don't care. What happens to Rachel wouldn't, wouldn't matter. I'm not married. Like, think about this. Like, how many of you, if this happened to your son, would you say, marry Rachel and have that guy be your father-in-law that you can never trust? Don't ever turn your back on him. No, you, you'd probably say, man, run, run. And if we don't care what happens to Leah. We don't care what happens to Rachel. We don't care what happens to the familial relationships between Laban and Rebecca. Most American Christians would not take the time to sit and say, God, it's a weird circumstance. What would you have me do? We would just bail. If I don't consent, nobody can bind me. They sin this way, and therefore I'm justified to lay aside all of my obligations. Faith, listen to me, can trust God to see to me while I see to my covenant obligations and the good of others. You're going to get sinned against. And all God's people said, amen. It's going to happen. And so what do you do? Do you use somebody sinning against you as an opportunity to bail on your covenant obligations? Or should you stop and say, regardless of what they did, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? This is not my plan, but if you want me to do this, I'll do this. Fourthly, if you have means, don't be Labanic in your helping of the next generation. Laban is the worst. He's just the worst. He tries in all of his dealings with Jacob, he tries to build up his own house at the expense of Jacob and his daughters who he gives in marriage to Jacob. And there's so many, there's so many um, American Christians in our culture that are missing this fantastic opportunity for us to, once we've arrived at like wealth or retirement or all of those things where we tend to just want to spend it on ourselves and live out our days in peace and security, Instead of saying, how could God use me and all of my means to bless the next generation? Think about the opportunity Laban missed. Jacob is going to be God's man on this earth for a season. And Laban missed the opportunity of being the most significant man in Jacob's life. He could have said, man, I know that God is with you. I'm going to endeavor to bless you and to build up your house. Instead, he tried to cheat him. Jacob still won and Laban missed out. Um, it's an amazing thing. I was listening to, um, you, you get all of those, occasionally a conversation will come up in, in, the, um, in our country about, um, about anti-Semitism and people will say, you know, talk about ideas of like the Jews rising up to positions of power and wealth and they're, you know, the Jews are for the Jews and those kind of conversations. You've heard most recently, I think uh, Kanye and uh, Mel Gibson has talked about that and several others. And I heard this old, wealthy, powerful Jewish man in an interview. And they asked him, is that true? And you're expecting him to say, of course not. And he goes, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It's like, listen, I'm a, I'm a Jewish man. I have a Jewish worldview. I worship, I worship you know, the, the God of Abraham. And when a young Jewish man comes to me in my community, he's going he's gonna to marry my daughters. He's going to marry my cousins. He's going to marry our people. He's going to do business and bless our community. He shares my worldview. He shares my value. Of course I'm going to enrich that guy. And so he says when he comes, when a young man comes in our community and says, I've got an idea to, to start a business, to be able to provide for my family and be a blessing to our community, he said we give them money, uh, um, what is it called, interest-free. If you can pay it back, awesome. If you can't, no worries. We, just, we want you to succeed. And sadly, so many in the church just don't think, we, we, it's, we lack the vision of being able to see that. So you look around in, in, in our church, and, and some of them are not here, but 
when you look at the young men in our church and just see the studs that we've got who either are going to have to go charge and make their own way, which they can do by God's grace, or we've got a bunch of older guys who've been there and who've done that and who have means to help them get on their feet that, that could say, stand on my shoulders and you'll be able to reach higher or get there faster. So when, when, when we look at this, like there's, it's helpful to just ponder what could have Laban done for Jacob. He could have done much in every way. And so think about that and, and, um, and employ that as you, as you can. Don't be like Laban in your helping of the next generation, trying to rip them off and use them. All right, fifthly and lastly, God is a God who loves to work good out of evil, truth out of falsehood, beauty out of ugliness. It was the falsehood and the treachery of Laban that ultimately led to the birth of Christ according to the flesh. Can I say that to you again? It was the falsehood and treachery of Laban that ultimately led to the birth of Christ according to the flesh. Jesus was Leah's boy. That's amazing. And it was the falsehood and treachery of one of Christ's best friends and all the religious leaders that caused him to be crucified. It was the ugliness of greed and jealousy, the coveting of power and the praise of men that led to the one innocent man being lifted up on a Roman cross. And it was that cross of death that brought you and I eternal life. Because on that cross, the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. So never fear what wicked men will intend to do to the church. Never fear. Because God loves to defeat his enemies by letting them take their best shot and then turning that very shot into his people's salvation and his enemies' destruction. Always. Haman builds his own gallows. Our sin caused Christ's death, but Christ's death brought us life. We meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So come to the table fearing nothing, fearing nobody, fearing no change of plans, fearing no person trying to rip you off. You come to the table for all things are yours and you are Christ and he promises to work all things together for your good. So come and welcome to King Jesus.